friends and colleagues, and welcome to Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. This is a bonus episode. This is demo episode number two. When Michelle and I were originally conceiving of creating a podcast, we decided to make a few episodes as practice to try out various ways we could talk about articles, various different sound setups. We were still trying to figure out what intro music we were going to use and so on. So we made those demo episodes and since they were demo slash practice episodes, they weren't really released on podcasting platforms, but we still made full episodes, and I thought that we still had some good discussions, and so thought it might be worth releasing them. They have been available on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, of course, but this is a convenient way, I think, for people to get access to them, and some of my favorite articles have been in the demo articles. So, without further ado, here is me and Michelle. Hello, and welcome to demo episode number two of Dermosphere. We've got six articles this time. I'm uh, Luke Johnson, a pediatric and adult dermatologist at the University of Utah. And with me, as always, (laughs) is Michelle Tarvox, also MD and an assistant professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. So let's get right into it this time. Um, I will... an article I have about cyclosporin and the use of SJS and TEN. So the title is Use of Cyclosporin for the Treatment of Stevens-Johnson Syndrome slash Toxic Epidermal Necrolysis. This is from uh, the JAD in September 2018. And this is a retrospective review um, from patients from um, Massachusetts General Hospital that were treated with either cyclosporin or IV corticosteroids. So they state that they had 93 patients over the course of the time frame of the study. And the upshot is that the people who were treated with cyclosporin did better, uh, statistically significant better. It was mostly a change in their time to re-epithelialization, which was 9.6 days versus 14.1 days. So about four and a half days faster in the cyclosporin group. The length of also shorter in the cyclosporin group, but it didn't reach statistical significance. Two of the patients treated with steroids had sepsis as well. So um, the take-home points that I thought were important, so there's been a lot of um, talk lately about cyclosporin for SJS or what's the best treatment for SJS-TEN. People are talking about cyclosporin and etanercept. There was a lot of that conversation going on at the AAD meeting lately. Um, some people are still talking about steroids and some people are talking about some other stuff. So it seems like we could really use some data on this. This is mostly further evidence that cyclosporin um, is a good option. It's first line at our institution and it's first line in the kids that I have uh, with SGSTEN. Usually I treat them with cyclosporin three to five milligrams per kilogram per day for seven days with no taper, no taper. Based on this study, the biggest benefits that you get with cyclosporin over steroids is the time to re-epithelialization rather than the cessation of skin lesions, which seems to take uh, the same amount of time for both groups. Steroids increase the risk of sepsis, as we probably already knew. And the other thing that just kind of striking was that re-epithelialization just takes a long time. Uh, Whether you're treated with steroids or cyclosporin or presumably nothing, it takes 10 to 14 days. 
Um, that's a long time. And it's a long time to watch your kid or your loved one sit in ICU wrapped up like a mummy. But, you know, I think it helps to know that this is just how long it takes to be able to tell patients and parents about it so that they know that things are still on the right track. I was confused about one part of the study where they originally say they are reporting on 93 patients, but they mentioned that they had 13 patients on cyclosporin and 35 patients on steroids, and that adds up to 48, which is not 93. <laughs> so I assume there's some kind of typo somewhere, but overall it seems like their conclusions are probably still sound. Yeah, the SJS literature is always, you know, kind of challenged by a lot of things, including inclusion criteria and the fact that the majority of the studies are going to be done in a retrospective fashion due to the life-threatening nature of the condition. Um, I think in some of the other literature that they've been reviewed about cyclosporin, they've talked about um, how they usually exclude patients with pre-existing renal disease or liver disease, elderly patients, and those with HIV or AIDS. Um, did they have any of those kinds of patients in this sample? They just talked about the patients that they used, the number of patients that they had. They didn't really go into too much detail about comorbidities and things like that. But probably there's a cohort of people that like are not really good candidates for cyclosporin. And presumably those are the people that are left out of some of these studies. But it seems like if your patient is a reasonable candidate for cyclosporin, it's a good go-to. Um, what are you guys using at Texas Tech these days? We have a lot of co-management with our burn surgeons, so they actually have a pretty stringent debridement protocol that they utilize to help decrease fast ligand interaction in patients who have confirmed diagnoses of uh, toxic epidermal necrolysis. And then a lot of them, yeah, debridement in the OR. There's a lot of literature in the burn community about that protocol. It's very interesting. If you look at different types of literature, um, regarding the same disease, we have sort of different protocols across different specialties. So I think the multidisciplinary management can also be a very useful way to help take care of these patients. I don't think I've ever heard a dermatologist recommend debridement. <laughs> no, you haven't. <laughs> that is likely true. Uh, all right. Well, that's what I got for that, that article. More, more evidence for an SJS for me. I think that's a that's a good supporting structure. And then the nice thing about that also is that, you know, short of just knowing baseline renal function, you don't have to wait for a lab test like when we were previously trying to utilize IVIG, having to determine potentially the patient's IgA status if you didn't know the type of IVIG you were utilizing would sometimes be a complicating step. So I think it's a nice lateral move to talk about a new antibiotic since we're talking about, you know, we're talking about uh, SJS. So I had a very interesting article from the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, about the new antibiotic omatocycline for acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections. And I thought that was kind of a very interesting thing. We're always, you know, on the lookout for new possible treatment options, especially in this world of growing antibiotic resistance. So this is a new aminomethacycline antibiotic in the tetracycline class um, that has been um, given FDA approval for community-acquired bacterial pneumonia and acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections, but it is not just another Me Too tetracycline. So one of the things that sets it apart is its dosing. It's available in both IV and oral formulation, and the IV formulation can be used at 100 or 200 milligrams um, by IV infusion, often then transitioned to an oral dosing protocol of 300 milligrams once a day. And so that once daily dosing with very high 
uh, ability to cover a variety of bacterial infections is attractive as an option, especially for the treatment of acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections, since they constitute about 15% of ER presentations and can result in a lot of morbidity and hospital time if the patient has to be admitted for IV antibiotics. So um, it's once daily dosing may improve adherence, uh, literature from other types of medications, in, uh, indicate that if you transition from twice daily dosing to once daily dosing, you increase compliance between 30 and 60%. And so for something wow. that you need to be closely adhering to a dosage protocol, that's an attractive attribute. It does have some of the weaknesses of the doxycycline, tetracycline family, including that it can be impaired in its ability to be absorbed by calcium or divalent cations. So antacids, multivitamins, and dairy products can't be taken with the medication, and they recommend taking it on an empty stomach. It also has the tetracycline family kind of a weakness of potentially causing GI upset, but they do recommend advising patients to take it on an empty stomach. So I think that that's interesting. Yeah, I always recommend people take doxycycline with a meal. Yeah, me too, usually. You know, so this was uh, something that I think might cause a little bit of stomach upset in participants, and that was the most frequently um, confirmed side effect in the study, which was a non-inferiority study against linazolid. And so the long and short of it was that the omatocycline was non-inferior to linazolid. Linazolid also has the ability for IV and oral dosing. The oral dosing with linazolid is a twice daily dose of 600 milligrams. Um, another study I read while I was reading up on this was about the utilization of omatocycline versus IV vancomycin and cost savings in terms of hospitalization and utilization costs. And it is kind of a potentially attractive option for patients to be able to take the medication at home, especially if they have compromised vascular access. Um, both papers I read indicated that this would be a useful antibiotic in the drug abusing population who may have a higher frequency of skin and skin structure infections. Um, other interesting things, it is actually active against bacteria that are resistant to other tetracyclines. Um, so it circumvents the efflux of ribosome of the drug from the bacterially infected cells as well as ribosomal protection mechanisms that usually constitute tetracycline resistance in infections such as MRSA and was um, effective by uh, effective against organisms that usually MRSA would not be covered by. And there were no uh, increase in reporting of C. difficile infections in patients treated with omatocycline as well. So it's an interesting new antibiotic, one for us to be aware of. Um, it has a very funny trade name. <laughs> Am I allowed to say trade names? Sure. So N-U-Z-Y-R-A yeah. is its trade name. So Nuzira is its is its trade name for this new tetracycline family antibiotic. But an interesting thing to add to the armamentarium. And do we know how much it costs? I tried to figure that out. Um, so cost data was not available, um, but they talked about cost savings versus inpatient hospitalization and vancomycin dosage. Um, so from that, I was able to deduce that it looked like it was about $1,000 a day. Um, so I'm not certain that that's the definitive cost and what it would be in the outpatient setting, what insurance coverage for the medication would be like. But I don't expect it's going to be a $4 generic. No. Okay. I found something online. I don't know how, you know, correct it is. But if you wanted to buy 16 tabs of 150 milligrams of omatocycline so that's 300 milligrams a dose so this is eight doses it's three thousand dollars okay so not cheap not cheap 
but uh, potentially it has a niche somewhere. Yeah. The cost of these new drugs is always what I mostly mm-hmm. worry about. And mostly what I see this, where I see this being used is maybe with things like staff that are resistant to other tetracyclines. Yeah. Is that how you read the article? Yeah, well? I read the article that it would be useful for bacterial re- resistant um, skin and soft structure infections that were fairly serious, large abscesses, surgical infections, things of that nature. Um, the fact that it does cover other tetracycline resistant infections is a promising feature and its ab- ability to be effective against MRSA is also attractive. Important to note, I think, that this is a study that was conducted by the pharmaceutical that company. That makes it, so yes. That is, that is something I noticed right away. I was like, oh, this is the company that's on the bottle. So, so definitely you always have to interpret those things with a grain of salt. But it is nice to know that there is a, a proverbial new kid on the block and one that doesn't have some of the weaknesses of its previous um, predecessors. So that is an interesting little factoid. Also has some good coverage against um, strep, which has got some resistance issues with other tetracyclines. And we're not infectious disease doctors, but why do you think that they compared it against linazolid? I think it was because they were able to transition them to orals. Like, I think they wanted to parallel study because they'd previously had the study against vancomycin. Um, but vancomycin to omedocycline is sort of apples to oranges. And I think they wanted more of an apples to apples comparison. So something both IV and oral bioavailability used to treat serious soft tissue infections, I think was what they were going for. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. We'll, we'll look for omatocycline in five to ten years when it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> we both work at um, educational facilities. <laughs> I would next like to talk about um, hydroxychloroquine in morphia. Hmm. So this is another article from the JAD. This one is from January 2019. And the title is Treatment of Morphia with Hydroxychloroquine, a Retrospective Review of 84 Patients at Mayo Clinic, 1996 to 2013. And this is from, I guess we should maybe mention the authors. Uh, You know, this is still a demo episode, but mentioning the authors makes some sense. So this is by Kumar, Wetter, and um, colleagues. So uh, as a pediatric dermatologist, I see morphia, you know, sometimes it's more common in kids, it seems like, or at least it can be more serious in kids. And I hadn't really thought about hydroxychloroquine as an option for morphia. Um, And these guys have been using it every so often for the past, or for 17 years anyway. And what they did was look back at the 84 patients that were treated. All of them were treated with hydroxychloroquine as their only systemic therapy, but they could also use topicals. They didn't go into too much detail about which patients were on topicals, but one assumes most of them were. Um, about 36 of their 84 patients were under 18 when they were diagnosed, though I'm not quite sure how old they were when they began taking the hydroxychloroquine. And the upshot is that hydroxychloroquine seemed to be um, pretty good for these patients. Now, there's no comparison group, so it's tough to say for sure, but um, almost let's see, 80% had a significant response, meaning 50% or greater, and almost half of them had a complete response, which is um, pretty darn good. And they were taking it for an average of two months, and then morphia in general, I'm sorry, they were taking it for an average of two years, and morphia in general lasts for an average of, depending on the subtype, roughly three years before it burns out naturally. So it seems like there might be something there. Um, As terms of side effects, people did pretty well. They had some nausea, 
but you know everything can cause nausea no retinal toxicity and the dosing they used was 400 milligrams per day for adults and five milligrams per kilogram per day for kids and they had a few patients relapse they were not able to identify any characteristics that made people more likely to relapse and then the relapse occurred six months or a year after finishing the course so one of the things they recommend is if you're going to start hydroxychloroquine on people with morphia maybe treat until the disease has basically stopped progressing, burned out, and then continue treatment for another six to 12 months after this response. It's nice to know about because I consider hydroxychloroquine a fairly safe medication. I know patients in general are bit concerned when you talk to them about the retinal toxicity, mm-hmm. but uh, based on the guidelines that came out a couple of years ago, you just need one screening exam in your first year of taking it, and then assuming everything's fine, you don't need another one until you've been on it for five years. Which in this case, most people won't, e- won't even be on it for that long. Um, and then, you know, it can cause some nausea, but otherwise did pretty well, and it seems like it might be reasonable to add to topicals. Question I have is whether or not it's reasonable to add this to other systemics potentially. So in our world, we see, um, you know, patients with severe linear morphia, like on the face, on Kudasab type stuff, and then we treat them with methotrexate with or without oral corticosteroids at the beginning. And you wonder if hydroxychloroquine could add anything to treatment for those patients. That's a very good question because, like, I know sometimes you have a very aggressive form of morphia. I've got you know, a couple patients with the linear variety where it affects a extremity and you really want to get in front of that. So sometimes you need to come at that a little bit guns blazing. Um, one other question, did they mention anything about the cutaneous hyperpigmentation? None of, that was not reported as a side effect for any of their patients. That's good. I don't think. I can check to make sure here. Have you seen that with your patients? I know it, in the textbooks they say it happens more often than it seems to happen in actual real life. I think it depends a lot on where you live, because when I practiced up in Cleveland and it was not as sunny as it is now that I practice in sunny, sunny Lubbock, Texas, I really didn't see a lot of hydroxychloroquine related skin pigmentation changes. But here in Texas, I see them kind of frequently. And I think it might have something to do with sun related interactions with the medication, possibly also with patient characteristics, because I take care of a lot more patients that are Hispanic in Texas than I did up in Cleveland. And I think that there might be some, you know, different genetic variables that play into whether or not patients develop that cutaneous hyperpigmentation. So it looks like two of their 84 patients did have hyperpigmentation or discoloration, and this was at Mayo, so probably they're more (laughs) Cleveland sort of demographic. More like Cleveland. (laughs) So another study that one could do, of course, would be some kind of randomized control trial with hydroxychloroquine, maybe one arm with methotrexate as well, um, if we ever get enough morphia patients to try that. I believe that could be, I believe that could be assembled. You might have to do multi-center. So that's, that's very interesting. I'm glad to, to know that they had good results in the pediatric population. So sometimes when you're a non-pediatric dermatologist like myself treating kids, um, it gets a little nerve wracking. So. <laughs> All right. That's what we got. Hydroxychloroquine. Consider it for morphia. All right. Well then speaking of skin pigmentation, I think that's a lovely segue into are tattoos associated with negative health related outcomes? and risky behaviors. Very interesting study out of the International Journal of Dermatology by doctors Caroline Mortensen, Michael French, and Andrew Timming. So this and, is the, the text to see if the stuff my mom was always telling me when I was growing up was correct. Don't, don't hang out <laughs> with the people with tattoos. It was a very interesting study, partially because of the way it was conducted, 
So a lot of the literature about health behaviors, about risks, about different socioeconomic characteristics and things like that come from a very kind of superficial type of registry um, that only really collects data on presence or absence of a permanent tattoo. So really not a whole lot of information about the type of tattoo, location, number, subject material, that kind of thing. Um, so I thought it was very interesting that the authors actually pursued information at a greater depth than has previously been sort of interrogated using an interesting platform called the um, Amazon MTurk, um, which allowed them to put forward a questionnaire that gathered data from a larger potential patient population, um, not limited by things like geography for a convenient sample or college attendance, um, as would be with a regular college sort of based study. So, you know, previous data about tattoos have come from things like the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescents to Adult Health. And that was the one that really only gathered data as whether or not somebody had a permanent tattoo. But the Amazon's Mechanical Turk program allowed them to design a survey that incorporated information as to how many tattoos the individual had, um, where they were located, so were they visible or not visible, and also if the subject material of the tattoo was considered to be offensive or not. And so they pursued um, information on patients' health status, on the presence or absence of a mental health diagnosis at any time in the patient's life or sleep disorders, um, presence or absence of smoking, uh, ever having been incarcerated, and number of sexual partners. And uh, one of the variables that they found actually neutral to slightly protective results for um, were health status. So health status was a self-reported inquiry as to whether you considered your health to be good or very good or poor, uh, binary data connect collected there. And they didn't find any significant connection between tattoos and poor health, and in fact, the self-reported health status of individuals with three or more tattoos actually were reported to have better health status than those without a tattoo. So that was an interesting finding that they brought forward. And a good uh, example of correlation is not causation. I can't get three tattoos <laughs> to improve my health. I don't think that that's how that works, but that is an interesting piece of data. Um, so some of the things that actually did show some strong and pertinent relationships were um, having a diagnosis, um, ever having received a diagnosis of mental health related condition, um, which was positively associated with number of tattoos and increased with increasing number of tattoos, as well as um, was increased for patients that had a visible tattoo or an offensive tattoo. Um, trouble sleeping had a similar correlation between number of tattoos, visible nature of tattoos. Sorry, um, you cut out for a second, right? After uh, trouble sleeping. Yeah, so trouble sleeping was also correlated with number of tattoos and whether or not they were visible. Okay. I think one of the useful characteristics of this study for us as dermatologists who get to see a lot of patient's skin and get to see all their interesting tattoos is the association with um, risk-taking behaviors. And so there was a strong and positive correlation between smoking and having any tattoos with an increasing percentage of patients um, reporting smoking with more tattoos. So patients with four or more tattoos had a 22.4% higher chance of, of being a smoker than patients with fewer than four. Offensive tattoos showed a similar um, percentage increase of 24.1%. So current smoking status also being something we can usually assess having the patient in the room because most of us possess, you know, 
functional nasal apparatus, but um, it is something we could potentially ask patients about if we notice that they have a higher number of tattoos. Other um, associations included having ever been in jail or incarcerated. Now, this might be a chicken or egg situation because sometimes patients get tattoos in prison through or, you know, with, or without their own choice sometimes. And the likelihood of a visible or offensive tattoo would be a little bit higher under those particular circumstances. But there was that correlation between having spent time in prison and patients um, with tattoos, with a higher number of tattoos, with a visible tattoo or an offensive tattoo. Um, the one that I think might be important for us as dermatologists is that the number of sex partners in the past year was increased in all participants with tattoos and, again, was increased um, with number of tattoos. But interestingly, having an offensive tattoo had no bearing on, on this particular variable. Um, so having a higher number of tattoos or a visible tattoo might indicate an increase in risk-taking behaviors, and that might connote the significant um, possibility that you should maybe ask your patients if they have any concerns about STIs, especially in this time of increasing numbers of STIs, as well as increasing numbers of drug-resistant STIs. I think that, you know, we probably don't ask our patients about that enough to um, help uncover some untreated cases of, you know, conditions that we as a specialty should really own as we are dermat dermatologists and venereologists by history. So I think that it's a very interesting study. It um, sort of reaffirmed some potential connection between tattoos, risk-taking behavior, smoking, and possibly incarceration or mental health disorders. It did not support that patients with tattoos might have a more um, compromised health status. So that was an interesting factor. And um, they wanted to set this up also as a model for potentially future studies to investigate links between tattoos, health, wealth, productivity, and quality of life, potentially using this novel instrument, which I thought was pretty interesting to use. So that Amazon Mechanical Turk program, which didn't seem to be very expensive or cumbersome to use. So something that might be useful in assessing all sorts of things in the dermatologic realm. Yeah, my impression about this MTurk thing is that it's something people can sign up for, I guess, and then maybe they get surveys sent to them and they can fill them out for money or something, yep. sort of like doctors can do that too, as some of us yeah. noticed. <laughs> so I suppose that's some kind of selection bias by itself. They're not catching people who don't use the internet that are not at least somewhat savvy with it. And I thought that might be related especially to their trouble sleeping thing. Like maybe these people got up in the middle of the night and then decided they would try to be productive and so got onto their mechanical Turk site and filled out this study <laughs> about tattoos. Another piece I wanted to point out is that, I, you know, part of me wonders if this study after I read it is inserting undue prejudice into my head because I found myself walking down the through the airport and I saw a tattoo on the back of somebody's neck and I was like oh I bet you've had 1.5 sexual partners in the past <laughs> year so I don't want to go into a patient encounter with some you know preconceived notions that pop up because I see some tattoos even though it looks like maybe I should it's an interesting position to be in yeah, I don't think it would be something where I would say, you have lots of tattoos, so you probably have lots of sex partners, but it might be a subconscious reminder to me to make sure to take care of that part of the patient's care so that, you know, we're not leaving any proverbial stones unturned. That seems like a more professional approach. <laughs> All right, I'm going to talk about surgical outcomes. Um, so 
I am, as you know, Michelle, was fortunate <laughs> in my residency to be trained by two very excellent Mohs surgeons. Um, mm-hmm. And one of them was kind of a very sort of, I would call it, had a relaxed approach. And whenever I would ask her some, you know, real specific detail about how to do a closure or something, a lot of the times her answer was something along the lines of, ah, it's fine, everything works out, these guys heal all right. And then I had another surgeon who I worked with who was all about meticulous attention to detail to achieve exquisite results. So they were kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, and I thought they were both excellent surgeons, excellent teachers. Um, but this is a study that sort of looks at one er- end of the spectrum versus the other. Um, and that's from JAMA Dermatology from January 2019 by Sklar, Eisen, and colleagues. And the title is Comparison of Running Cutaneous Suture Spacing During Linear Wound Closures and the Effect on Wound Cosmesis of the Face and Neck, a randomized clinical trial. So Basically, what they did was compare top stitches, running stitches, five millimeters apart versus two millimeters apart. That's it. Okay. Everybody was pretty much otherwise the same. Most of their patients were Mohs patients. A few of them were excision patients. And they were mostly older dudes. They were mostly in their 70s. 86% of them were males. They were all white. So that probably affects their generalizability in some fashion. But these people were randomized. They all had to have an excision that was at least three centimeters. And then randomly, one half of that excision was assigned five millimeters suture spacing, and the other was assigned two millimeter suture spacing. And then the patients themselves and also some blinded investigators who didn't, weren't the surgeons who completed the stitching um, checked the scar at three months after the procedure. And they used a validated scale called the POSAS, POSAS maybe, Patient and Observer Scar Assessment Scale, which evaluated the scars on several different methods. And the upshot is that there's no difference between two millimeter sutures and five millimeter suture spacing for your top stitches when you're closing heads and necks of white dudes in their 70s, basically. (laughs) But you hope that it's somewhat generalizable. They did a lot of things to otherwise make the surgical patients very similar to each other. So they always use polydiaxinone for their deep sutures. Um, The surgeon got to decide on the size of that. And um, they use 5.0 fast gut for all of the top stitches. And then they used a ruler and gentian violet pens to mark out five millimeters or two millimeters and put them in appropriately. So no outcome in the total POSA scales, no outcomes, differences in cosmesis, no differences in um, adverse events. So basically, we should probably be doing five millimeter running sutures instead of two or some other smaller number because it, you know, saves suture material and is probably a little bit faster and all that kind of stuff. I think that's very interesting. The POSA scale itself, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right either. But that's also very interesting. Um, it talks about the vascularity of the scar, pigmentation, thickness, pliability, and surface area. And the rating goes from one being normal skin to 10 being the worst scar imaginable, which I think is very interesting, like strong language to use in something given both to patients and professional observers. But it is a uh, apparently freely available um, scale. There's a website 
www.postoff.org that has that available for um, kind of review if anybody's interested in looking at it. But I do think that's interesting. And I think that like um, the spacing of stitches is something that's almost like uh, hereditarily imbued in us by our academic parents and grandparents. And, you know, if you look at different institutions, they have kind of different policies and practices about the spacing of sutures. But it's, it's nice to know that at least in a highly vascularized tissue that heals relatively quickly, like head and neck skin, that the spacing didn't seem to cause a huge disparity. It would be interesting to see a similar study repeated on truncal skin. Yes, they pointed that out. And also all these patients were white, but they did have surgeons of different training levels. So a lot of these um, closures were completed by fellows, but a lot of them were from attendings and some of them were by residents as well. I think that's, that's a very interesting thing. I, I look forward to hopefully more data about this because I think that you know, it, in larger excisions such as occur on the trunk and extremities that, you know, variable could be even more significant in terms of the dividends you'd get from utilizing different amounts of suture and different amounts of surgical time. It also makes me wonder what other bits of surgical dogma that we've picked up end up like not being a big deal. So maybe these people or some other groups will do additional studies on those sorts of things. And also it makes me wonder if I should use more fast gut. I don't use it all that much. I'm a little bit nervous about it because of the variability and how long it takes to absorb. It seems mm -hmm. like it's two to seven days, depending on the person and various other factors. Um, but these people overall, like, seem to have pretty good scars. So, as you said, it, the POSA scale ranks one to ten on like six different metrics. So a scale of six is normal skin, and then sixty is the most awful scar on every metric imaginable. And their average was about ten which is okay. not that far off from six. That's pretty good. Like the fast gut closure, five millimeters apart, did a pretty good job. Yeah. I feel like I'm always backed into using surgical gut, but I've never really been unhappy when I've had to use it. So, um, so I think speaking of surgery, our last article um, addresses preoperative hypertension and how it uh, affects intraoperative bleeding in patients undergoing Mohs micrographic surgery. So this was a letter to the editor from the JAD. Um, from Dr. Jaya Sekera and Clifford Lawrence. And Dr. Jaya Sekera is a Mohs Fellow at the Royal Victoria Infirmary of Newcastle, which is very exciting, in London, UK. So that's interesting. So this is from across the pond, as they would say. Um, so they had a cohort of patients, uh, 209 patients, 120 women, uh, men and 89 women undergoing Mohs surgery for skin cancers on the head and neck. And they measured the blood pressure in all of the patients before the surgery and in some of the patients during and after the procedure. And then they had the surgeon who was blinded to the blood pressure um, measurements rate the intraoperative bleeding as mild, which would be normal, no abnormal bleeding, moderate being bleeding increased but controllable or severe. And not surprisingly, they did find out that patients who had an elevated blood pressure over 140 systolic or over 90 diastolic did have a increased risk of intraoperative bleeding, meaning they had a little bit harder, harder time controlling the bleeding during the surgery. Um, so they had about um, 33 patients that had that moderate level of bleeding and the majority of those patients did have um, hypertension and severe in two patients um, so there were a few people that they really had a hard time controlling the bleeding. Uh, they also measured post-operative bleeding complications 
and they had postoperative bleeding in seven of their 209 patients. Five of those patients had had moderate to severe intraoperative bleeding. Um, two of the patients with postoperative bleeding had had normal bleeding during the surgery. And so those patients um, did seem to skew a little bit more towards the ones with intraoperative hypertension. However, after their statistical analysis, they were able to determine that while an increased blood pressure preoperatively did seem to portend a slightly increased risk of having difficulty controlling bleeding during the procedure, the patients that actually had postoperative bleeding didn't have a statistically significant correlation with hypertension. So um, the risk of intraoperative bleeding doesn't really pose a significant risk to patients beyond that slight increase in operative time that it will take to control the bleeding. So they didn't recommend preventing or delaying surgery on the basis of measured hypertension. They did note, as would not be surprising, that six of their seven patients that had postoperative bleeding were taking either clopidogrel or warfarin, and that postoperative bleeding was significantly associated with anticoagulant and antiplatelet therapies, which of course is not a surprise. Um, another interesting metric that they found was that most patients' blood pressure actually was highest preoperatively and fell during the surgery, which correlates to what I noticed is that patients are more, more nervous before you get started because they don't really know what to expect. And then once you're in the surgery and they kind of relax, their blood pressure tends to decrease. So some interesting data. Um, you might need to be a little bit more careful, a little bit more meticulous in those patients who have preoperative hypertension. But based off of this finding, at least if the hypertension is not severe, they don't recommend delaying the procedure. They brought up some interesting ideas in the last paragraph about whether preoperative music or anxiolytics or meditation might reduce the effect of blood pressure on surgical morbidity. And I think that would be very interesting to investigate. Um, but I think that it's a nice little, little piece of work here to sort of show that, you know, if you do have a patient that's hypertensive before surgery, just being a little bit more thoughtful about your hemostasis during the surgery is probably a good idea. So do you think we should bother checking people's blood pressure before dermatologic surgery? I think that we have to for two reasons. I think we need to record the vitals in the note. Um, I think that it's also if the patient's got severe hypertension, which the patients in this study did not have, um, you know, per the measurement that our university uses at least. So their blood pressures ranged from 104 over 54 millimeters of mercury to 191 to 100, over 112. And in our institution, if the patient has a systolic blood pressure over 200 or diastolic over 120, we would not do surgery on them. So um, they didn't have anybody that fell into that category. But I do think that patients in that severely elevated area need some alternative management techniques. And that is, I think, an area that possibly still needs to be studied. Fortunately, of course, that blood pressure level is hopefully relatively rare in the most population. But um, I do think it's not a practice that's going to go away, probably measuring the vitals. And it's always good to have a baseline also, just in case the patient has a reaction to the anesthetic. And you need to determine if their heart rate of 54 is just their normal bradycardia or if that's something in response to the procedure. Fair enough. I don't know. I find myself just not wanting to know their blood pressure. <laughs> Well, the surgeons in this study didn't. Like, so the people who were actually doing the surgery were blinded to the blood pressure. So they did the surgery the same way they would have done, you know, for patients with normal blood pressure. So, so the, the surgeons here were blinded. I can have the uh, MAs do it and then I can still be blinded. <laughs> You're like, all right, take the blood pressure, but don't tell yeah. me there is Tell no. me what it is. <laughs> Great. Well, we got six good studies in today. So uh, to review, we, in no particular order, we talked about 
um, the use of cyclosporin and SJS and TEN. We talked about hypertension leading to a little bit more bleeding, but not bleeding complications in no surgery. We talked about hydroxychloroquine potentially being an option for morphia. We talked about a new tetracycline antibiotic, omatocycline, which was shown to be non-inferior to linazolid for skin infections. We talked about how suture spacing doesn't seem to matter too much on the head and neck. And we talked about tattoos being associated with more risky behaviors. Um, I was thinking about trying to insert some kind of funny patient anecdote today, but I got nothing. Michelle, you have anything <laughs> you want to say at the end here? Um, let's see. I, I will say that I have some very funny patient tattoo stories. Um, I have one patient that is one of my favorite patients, and I have permission to tell this story. She had her first seborrheic keratosis that she just hated and had her tattoo artist make it into a daisy. So the center is the seborrheic keratosis, the center of the daisy, and then it has petals all around it, which I think is just adorable. That is excellent. All right. Well, thanks, friends, for listening to uh, this demo episode, whoever you are listening to the demo episode. <laughs> and we'll be back again in a couple weeks, probably. I'm already gathering articles for our next episode, and they look pretty cool, so I'm excited. Sounds fantastic. Stay educated. <laughs> And that will do it for bonus episode, demo episode number two. If you would like to find other episodes, be they normal episodes, bonus episodes, or demo episodes, you can find them on our website, dermospherepodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and any of those ways, including our website, is a good way to drop us a line. Thanks, of course, to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech Dermatology for lending us Michelle. We will come at you next week with our normal episodes, which, of course, release every two weeks. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane.